just start. You don't need to know anything. Just get momentum. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today I have on Joel Gamoran. He has a very impressive background. He has a show on A&E called Scraps. He's done with Katie Couric. He's been on the Today Show 57 times as one of their lead chefs. He wrote a book called Cooking Scrappy. And before all that, he was the national chef for Sur La Top. But all that is a footnote to what he's working on right now with his startup Homemade, which is essentially live interactive cooking classes. Launched during the pandemic, went from idea to seven figures in under 12 months, and they're just getting started. Um, this one's really wide ranging from gives advice to anybody that wants to, you know, put themselves on camera or be in front of an audience, what worked for him to all of a sudden be this guy cooking cooking classes to being on the Today Show. He talks about how one in with Katie Couric on the streets of New York changed his whole life. Um, and then he even gets to a conversation with his dad that helped him figure out what was the right path for him. And he was very open and honest with what he's going through as a founder, trying to navigate, should he raise a lot of money or try and bootstrap this? And then at the very end, I make him give myself a very poor chef two tips on how I can impress people and act like I'm a good chef. And honestly, it's, it's, it's pretty good advice. And also full transparency. Um, I'm an advisor to Joel in homemade. So hopefully this isn't too salesy, but I am very biased in the product he has built, but really hope you enjoy this one. If you're a first time founder or entrepreneur, there's a lot of good stuff in here. So we'll get started. All right. Well, it is finally happening. I have my friend on, I can call a friend, uh, Joel, where this podcast has been uh, a long time coming. It's been my fault because of some daycare uh, mishaps, but Joel, we're doing it. We're doing the podcast. First of all, it's so not been your fault. Um, and we are absolutely friends. We're new friends, but um, I'm also in the daycare hell, which is we both have kids under four and five. And uh, we constantly compare notes of being in the weeds as a young dad. Yeah. Whenever I get an email from the daycare, my body just shivers. I'm like, please don't be closed. And so you and I have both had like the, the World War Three bombs dropped on us with daycare closures. But yep, there is childcare today. So you and I can chat, man. Dude, I, it's so funny because it's, it's like part of parenting that no one tells you about is like when you're single, your day starts. It's like very, you know, what's going to happen, you know, you know, whatever. When your day starts with a kid, you have no idea what the day has in store. Like, literally, every day is Armageddon. Every day. It's like, that's the exhausting part of being a parent. It's just the unknown. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's the unexpected is going to happen every day. Like, and you're, you start the second the kids wake up, like just getting the kids out the yeah. door. I deserve a freaking trophy. We are doing yes. backflips. It yes. is so hard. And that's why like my partner, Jonathan, like he starts his day, he meditates, he reads, he can work out, have a lot of me time. I'm having like him? goldfish yeah. thrown in my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, 
it was really fun. Like, cause you and I are working together, but just like going in your background, I mean, dude, you've done so much. You have a book called cooking scrappy. You have an A&E show called scraps. You're on the today show once a month. You were the national chef at Sir La Tab, Sir La Table. I never know how to pronounce it, but um, you now it. you're you Anela, all right, perfect. And you're a founder. So we're going to get into all of that because I think a lot of people can learn from your journey and like where you're at because you're at a really interesting phase of like some amazing traction and growth. But you have to make some tough decisions. But first, like, how did this get started? Because you're in a space which is, let's call you a, a well known chef, celebrity chef, whatever that is, that's kind of like the foundation of this. How did that even begin? First of all, I loved cooking as a teenager. I cooked for my prom day. I didn't take her out for dinner. Cooking for me was an amazing way to give back to people. It was kind of like giving people a hug to me. And I really love people. And so it was this glue that really stuck people together. My parents actually got divorced when I was 17. And so my family, I come from a big family of three other siblings. And we kind of dispersed. And when I cooked, I realized we kind of came back together. And so Cooking became more than an interest. It became a way of life for me. And that's what really drove me to pursue it. And I fell in love with the Food Network. It was just kind of starting in the mid-90s, Bobby Flay, Jamie Oliver. And I looked up to them, and they were really a comfort for me. I also played really, really competitive tennis, and uh, so much so that I actually went to school for a scholarship for it. And I was a little bit tired of the competition, and cooking to me felt like a break from that. It felt like, you know, like Jonathan, like a little meditation situation. You know, I would come home and take out some teenage anxiety on some focaccia dough or, uh, you know, roasted chicken and it would just kind of ease my ADD and all that stuff. And so cooking really became a central focus to me. And I, you know, I tried the restaurant thing. I hated it. I went to two cooking schools, which I I loved, one in Italy and the Culinary Institute of America here in, in America. But then I went to restaurants and I just, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had a job, Jim, where you knew it wasn't right and you knew it wasn't exploiting your your, your strengths. Have you ever had that? Oh, for sure. I mean, well, one, I, I used to be a bartender in college. I can make a, a real mean vodka tonic. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I worked in finance and investment making because that's what I was told to do with the finance degree. But I'm in yeah. there, I'm like, this isn't me. Like, I can't be that MD, but like, I, I feel like I had more of a creative side. But that's interesting, though, because you go the restaurant path, but with cooking and chefs, it's like, what is the path one could take with a career? Because you've done something almost like non-traditional, and it's it's pretty interesting. Thanks for noticing that, and you're you're right. And I've always been kind of a non-traditional guy. I like to pave my own path. And even in college, I went to a school that didn't have restaurant management as uh, as a major, so I petitioned it for two years, created my own major. And has always kind of created my own jobs for myself and opportunities. And around 23, I've been working in kitchens in San Francisco and abroad. And I came home and I was taking a drive with my dad in Seattle. And he said, what do you really want? And I said, I believe I want a platform. I believe I can inspire people. I believe that I can motivate people to cook because cooking has done so much good for me that I think I can actually impart that on other people. And he said, Name one thing that you've done to take that step. One thing. And I had nothing, literally nothing. So I started to kind of reach out to people. I don't know anyone in food media. I don't know anyone in production. I don't even know what that word meant at 23. 
But I reached out to an advertising agency here in Seattle, obviously probably not the right people, but I'm like, I don't know where to start. And they said, just start, just start filming. So I literally started saving money from my restaurant job and I would pay videographers to go with me around the Pacific Northwest. And we started a show called Humbly Northwest. And this is back in 2009. So just starting out and I put these things up on the internet and you can go find them now. Humbly Northwest, it, the production quality kicks ass. Like it was great. <laughs> it holds and up nice. It, it holds up nice. And you can see the beginnings of me trying to work out having a camera in my face. I was 23. I knew how to cook, but it was reps, you know, and that was the beginning of, of the journey. There's something you said of like making those hard decisions where you're like following a path of what people say you're supposed to do or what you assume it is. But having that conversation with your dad, where like, actually forget about what other people think. Like, what do I care about? The fact that you like were intentional to then go down that path. I think a lot of people struggle with that because you might, especially as you get older and you get comfortable in your lifestyle and it gets harder to make that transition. If you're fortunate enough to do it earlier, that's huge. A couple of quick questions I'm going to have to ask is, because um, my wife will kill me, um, the Italy cooking school, where was that yeah. and how big of an influence was that on like your, your cooking experience? Yeah, that's a good question. It was in Florence, the Culinary Institute of Florence. And it was huge because it wasn't taught by chefs. It was taught by nonas and like grandmas and moms. And it was Monday through Thursday. And every Thursday we had a regional cooking Italian class where you would cook from Puglia or you'd cook from Liguria or you'd cook from Sicily. And you'd make these recipes that are really native to this region. And then on Friday, I would go out to the region. I would take a uh, Ryanair for 50 bucks awesome. and I would go try the dish. Yeah, I would go try the dish that we learned. And it was just this mind-blowing experience that okay, you know, Caesar salad is not the only thing on Italian menus, you know, like, (laughs) and not only that, you know, they cook pasta with butter up in the north and they cook pasta with olive oil down in the south and why? And so it was a really transformative experience for me. I think that the lesson and as it relates to, you know, why we're talking today and if you were starting today remains true and you're a business owner, which is just start. You don't need to know anything. Just get momentum. There's so many things I do today as a business owner and personality and chef where I don't know the answer, but as long as you make a phone call, shoot an email, reach out to someone, whatever, momentum will follow and so will success, I believe. Man, that's really good advice. I totally agree. And you talk about getting the reps in. You've got to get reps in. You've yeah. got to be okay with like it being really bad out of the gate. Yeah. Um, even when I started this podcast, go back and listen to the first five. I think they're painful. <laughs> there, there's some like there's some nuggets of hope. So yeah, but uh, well, the audio quality is not good. So let's keep going down this path. So you're like, okay, I love cooking, but I want to use that to build a platform. Yeah. How does that lead to like the next path you go down? Because what I see is you go to sort of a table, you blow up, you're running yeah. it, and all of a sudden you're on the Today Show. But like, how, yeah. how does that happen? Yeah, good question. So Sir Latab, uh, I was looking for jobs that were not in restaurants. And Sir Latab, for those who don't know, it's kind of like Williams-Sonoma, but a little bit more approachable. And they have kitchens in their stores. So everyday people can come take classes and talk about reps, Jim. I mean, I was in front of two to 16 people on a daily basis, live, right in front of them, teaching them, right? Forget the cameras, teaching them. And I can see 
Am I losing their attention? Are they bored? Are they having fun? Am I, am I at the same level as them? I remember one time I said, all right, now you add your chicken stock to the sauce and someone raised their hand and said, well, what's chicken stock? Which is a great question. But for me as a chef, I'm like, chicken stock? That's, everyone knows what chicken stock is. So I had to understand how to talk to the home cook. And so I started teaching at a local Sterletab here in Seattle and getting those reps every day. When someone called out, I wanted their class. When the class happened, I wanted to be so influential on these people. I can remember looking down at my cutting board and saying, I can't believe people are paying to come listen to me talk. Like, that is nuts. I'm 23, 24 years old. And it was just these reps. And I got, you know, to the point where we were opening up a store in New York and corporate was here in Seattle. And they said, do you want to go to New York? Do you want to represent us in New York? And that was my shot. I was 25. I was really comfortable. I've already moved a lot, and I was back in Seattle. I didn't want to move again, but I decided, listen, I, I think this is the opening. I think this is the shot. So I went to New York, and that particular kitchen was on 57th Street, right below the Hearst Tower. Do you know that? Dude, my wife used to work at, at Hearst. That's a beautiful view. No. You're right by Central Park. That's an insane yeah. view. Yeah, man. That's a good subway ride because we were on the west side. Take the two up. and Yeah. And Wait, yeah where did you, you live on the west side? We were in the West Village at West 10th and Hudson in a glorious 300-square-foot studio apartment um, <laughs> that might have had a mouse problem. But it was like two grand a month. And we were down yeah, the street but- from Brooke Shields and Sarah Jessica Parker. But they had like... Amazing townhomes, and we had a closet. But uh, man, we loved oh, it. God. Hey, man, three hundred <laughs> square feet in the village—you were living large. That's 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 legit, right? Balling, super straight balling. But um, so as you know, Hearst, and for those who don't know, it's a tower that that holds a lot of media companies: Oprah Magazine, Food Network Magazine. So I knew when we moved in there, there was a lot of eyes that were going to be on my cooking school. And there was going to be some openings that came. And sure enough, people started to come down there on date nights or they would come down with colleagues. And I would have opportunities. I would get opportunities to go on little morning shows and local cooking shows. And one day I got an opportunity to go on the biggest show I've ever been on, which was the Katie Couric show. I don't know if you remember that show. Yeah. Yeah. Long time ago. And she wanted like three hacks that were good for baking. And you have one minute. And I'm like, cool. So I came up with three hacks. I had one minute with her. And by the way, when you go on these things, it's not like I hung out with Katie before the show and got to know her. She comes on set. Everyone's doing her makeup. And she goes, hi, I'm Katie. I, I freak out. And I say, hi, I'm Joel. And they go, three, two, one, go. And you're like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So literally, I mean, I, I did the one minute segment. And then right after the segment, she looked at me and said, you're really good. You really have something. Will you get in contact with me? I, I'd like to work with you. And that was that was another opening. You know, you see these openings, you get these lucky breaks sometimes, and the stars align, and you just got to kind of run after it. I've never had your food. You have not invited me over. That's a separate conversation. <laughs> but um, you are very good on camera. Talk to me about, like, we know you got the reps to get yeah. there, but all of a sudden you have these cameras in front of you. What do you think got her attention to see that you're talented because she's seen a lot, right? So mm. she knows. Um, mm. What do you think it was? Yeah, I do think it was a, It was all those reps I was having at Sur La Table, and I know how to keep people's attention. I knew how to not lose them, right? And I think most chefs talk chefy, and I was talking like a normal human that knew what he was talking about. So that was one of it. The second is 
the first time I ever went on local news, which was here in Seattle on Como 4, I was 22 and I practiced all night. And they said I had five minutes. I practiced all night because I don't know how long I'm going to do. And I show up to the studio and they say, hey, breaking news just happened. So you actually now have three minutes and 45 seconds. Oh, man. And I'm like, are you? I literally remember saying, are you freaking joking? I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but I literally lost my mind. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to forget everything I practiced and just wing it. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me because I think most people get in front of the camera or they speak publicly and they're really trying to hit certain points or they're trying to hit certain time marks. And when you start thinking about points and time marks, you become less human. And the more human you are, and the more you are yourself and the more vulnerable that you are, the more powerful that you are and the more effective that you are. And so when you go back and see that first Katie segment, I could care less if I got through those three hacks. I don't think Katie or her audience even cared about the hacks. What they cared about was a normal human being getting up there, having fun and engaging. And without that, I don't think I would have progressed in my career. That's really good advice. And I I even gave you this question ahead of time. If someone's listening to this podcast, their startup gets picked up or whatever, and they get this press and they find themselves on the Today Show and they have their 15 minutes or seconds of fame, what advice would you give to someone that all of a sudden gets that platform? Because myself, I do a little bit of speaking and teaching. And what I found is whenever I like pose questions in second person, that'll like bring it back. I love your advice on like speaking to them like a human and chefy, but like any other hacks at like holding attention and how you're able to to pull that together or what people should do to not freeze up when all of a sudden the bright lights are on. Yeah, it's a great question, Jim. The first thing to know is that um, no one really cares. And I, 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 then that's the reality is that I've been on the Today Show now 57 times. I count because each one matters. To me. <laughs> and I've messed up out of those 57, probably a good 10 of them. And to the point where one time I was cooking with Hoda and she cut herself and there was blood all over the place on live TV <laughs> in front of 4 million people. And so the first time I went on, they showed me a clip on the Today Show. They, so they, the Today Show, kind of found out about me through Katie. And the first time I went on, they showed me a clip. They kind of media trained you for your first couple. And they showed me this guy who just lost it on live TV. He literally cracked. And you can go find it on YouTube. But he starts yelling at the host. He said, you're not even letting me get a word in. And he's a chef. He's like, I'm trying to teach you this recipe. You're not even letting me talk. And literally on live air, they're like, well, you're never coming back. This is, this, you know, and it's this really contentious And it made a huge impression on me that, again, it's not about the recipe. It's not about your business. If you were a business owner, if you started up and you're in an interview, it's not about your business. It's about you as the human. Don't sell. Don't go on these platforms. If you get a blog hit, if you get an interview, don't sell what you're doing or hawk your product. You know, ask for advice, be humble, and share what you've learned from a really, really vulnerable place. And if you can do that and be yourself, you will be invited back. And then eventually the press will come. But I think the big mistake, Jim, is that when you have that opportunity as a business owner to really have a platform, don't just go on there and say, I sell this widget, go buy this widget. Go on there and create a story around it, around yourself and around why you exist and the rest will follow. That makes sense. Do you agree with that? 
That's really good. I, I totally agree because people don't remember facts and data. They remember right. stories and how they feel. And if you talk totally. to someone like a human, that will resonate. Have you had like a moment where you were, you know, had a platform and you kind of like, what, what was that moment for you? Oh my gosh. I, um, well, one, I started teaching through the ANA cause I was doing stuff in New York through general assembly. Like, Oh, you should go teach marketing workshops, a big company, some companies like, okay, sure. And my first one, they send me out to like a regional one in Chicago. And I go in this room and it's like a hundred people doing a workshop for three hours. I was like, really, this is my first one. You can't give me like a layup, like a, a 10 person <laughs> one. And it's one of those where there's a lot of senior people in there too. I'm like, I'm not the smartest person in here. And I never want to play that card. I was like, I, I've got to do to your point. I need to think about this of how can I just add value and do more experience share on like what mm. I'm seeing and doing, especially with a room like that. It's hard to like read the room. So it's like, how can you keep them engaged? Cause you bring up a good point. Like when you're doing it in person, you can tell if someone's into it or not. Right. Totally. And so, um, if they're not, if they're losing it, it's like, what can I do to win them back? But, uh, totally. but yeah, man, that, that was crazy. I remember like, I it was like texting my wife in the bathroom beforehand. I was like, I'm already sweating. I was like, this is not, <laughs> not, not going well. <laughs> I'm sure it was amazing, but I think that, you know, we all have those moments where it's like, I wish I would have said this or I could have done this better or whatever. And the reality is no one's looking that close. It's very surface level thing. And I think people got to remember that and kind of let down their guard a little bit. And it doesn't mean that you should be less nervous. I'm glad that you're sweating going into it. I think that's a good sign. I still get nervous when I go on TV. That means you care, but it doesn't mean that you need to be a robot. It doesn't mean that you should be less of yourself. I don't know if I'd be good on TV with the lights. That kind of freaks me out, but I'm, I'm, cool, I'm cool with the live. Um, yeah, I'm horrible on TV. So I want to get to your business because this yeah. is a really cool narrative where you go to New York, you have this platform, you're yeah. on TV shows, but it's like, I, I want to do more. You don't want to just be like the national global chef at Sur La Table or Sur La Table. You create your own platform, Homemade. First, can you even tell people what what is Homemade? Yeah. Well, I'm going to back up for a second and say it was a really cognizant decision to start a business. I was in New York now for about 10 years and I felt like an actor. I felt like I was constantly singing for my lunch, um, <laughs> constantly in rooms with producers trying to convince them that I was good enough, even though I knew I was. But maybe I didn't look the right part. Maybe I was too heavy. Maybe I was too old or too young. It didn't matter. I felt like I was being typecasted. And that's not why I got into food. You know, I got into food because of the anti-competition. You know, I got invited to do Chop, Top Chef. I turned all those things down because I don't like the competition side of food. You'll never see me do a competition show or anything like that because to me, that's not why I joined. And so what happened was I started to kind of fall out of love with the idea of Joel as a celebrity chef. I still want the platform and I still want to inspire people. But me as an individual, it became too much as me as a product. I became the product. And I didn't like that. I didn't feel humble. It didn't feel right. It just felt weird being in a room talking in third person. Well, I think Joel should do this. I'm like, I'm standing right here. I'm not doing <laughs> it. So I called some mentors and some friends of mine and I asked them, do you think that I should continue to go down this path of really promoting me as a personality, as a chef? Or should I build something that's bigger than me? Um, that if I get hit by a bus, it still survives. You know, if I got hit by a bus and I'm just Joel the chef, that's it, right? I mean, we all know actors and actresses, 
their legacy dies when they die, right? Or singers or whatever. But when you build a business, a company, a platform, and you raise others up, this thing could live on forever. And I was starting to have kids. And so it was a very cognizant move to say, I'm going to take the pedal a little bit lighter. I'm going to take my foot off the pedal a little bit with the celebrity chef thing. I'm not going to say no to everything, but I'm going to say no to a lot more. And I'm going to start to build this business. And the idea behind this business is all the times I was able to teach and inspire people, I realized I needed to have a two-way conversation. And it wasn't until the pandemic that video calling, Zoom and things like that became normal. And I started to see an opportunity where you could have giant cooking classes and have two-way conversations with people from across the world. So we started to open it up. 20, 40, 60, 80 people came. And now we have about 250 to 500 people come per class. And it is an absolute blast. And we have six chefs. And we just got named one of the top 10 best cooking platforms in America by Good Housekeeping. And we're off to the races. It's been a year and a half, but it's been a crazy year and a half. Dude, that's insane. And you have so many tailwinds with the adoption of people being comfortable with Zoom and like yeah. live conversations like that. So for people that want to wrap their head around it, you're like, hey, I want to do a cooking class or experience, but you don't want to just sit there and watch YouTube videos. Right. You can literally join Homemade, do a live cooking show. It's like watching a cooking show, but you're a part of it. And you're cooking with these chefs. It's interactive. You're talking with them. And I've been fortunate to go to the studio you've built here in Seattle downtown. That's amazing. And I've seen it live and it's amazing. There's like 300 people in attendance. Chefs are engaging and people are having a party. And I, I don't know if you want to get into the business model around it, but so you, you built this in a time where there's clear demand for it. And now it's starting to take off. Like, Talk to people around what you're thinking from a business model perspective, like what it is now and what you'd want it to become. Yeah. And, you know, I never thought of myself as a businessman. I'm just starting to. And that's why I'm really surrounding myself with advisors and smarter people than me who've been around the block who can really help me, including you, Jim. And that's why uh, I so value our friendship and our, and our relationship. And we're in signal finding mode. And I, all I do is listen to podcasts about business and startups. And this is a big reason of how I found you and why I listen to this podcast, too, is because I find a lot of value in it. And so, yeah, we, we struck some oil, right? We, we found out there's a lot of people at home that are maybe lonely, who are passionate about food, and they're looking to connect on a bigger scale than just watching a YouTube video, to your point, Jim. And so we, we know that. And year one, we tapped that. Our revenue model, we started to move around. At first, we were selling tickets, like 20 bucks to come to the class. But we noticed that less people were coming to the class, and that, and that wasn't good. I didn't want to do 10 people here and there. So we said, oh, you know, let's really focus on corporate gigs, meaning maybe a company will hire us for their marketing team to do a team building or something like that. So we did a couple of months where we were really marketing heavy to these companies and calling companies and yeah, you, you get a couple of deals here and there, but it was really heavy lifting and not a huge payoff. And so what I started to realize is when we put up classes for free, a ton of people would come. And I thought, wow, that's an opportunity to, to really tell them a story about a brand, not our brand, but a different brand. So it started to kind of give the idea of, well, what if we brought in sponsors? So if an olive oil company paid me to talk about their olive oil in front of a thousand people, would that be a business model that might work? 
I started to reach out to a lot of my connections at Sur La Table, you know, manufacturers of cookware and things like that. And we started to talk to Breville as our first, uh, Breville's like KitchenAid. They make kitchen, you know, stand mixers, blenders and things like that. And what we found was, God, there's just, it, it, you know, I don't know about you, Jim, but when I go on Microsoft Word, I use about 5% of probably what it's capable of. I, right, I, I, yeah. I delete, you know, same thing with people with appliances. People weren't using their blender to the full ability. They didn't understand why there was the puree button, the blend button. They didn't understand that you could heat up soup in your blender. They didn't understand how to wash it or how to take care of it. And so these classes started to become really useful to people. It wasn't like selling. It was like empowering and, and helping them learn. And the brands loved it because they're tired of a 15-second ad. They want more value for these customers. And what happened was is a lot of these DTC brands, direct-to-consumer brands who sold on their website, they started to see a huge bump with COVID, especially in cooking, because people were starting to cook more at home. So they wanted to keep these people around. They didn't want them to leave and go to Amazon. So how do you keep someone around and you're a blender company when there's 4 billion blenders on Amazon? You give them something else. You give them value. And that's where homemade started to come in. They gave these cooking classes that could act as value add to their product. Does that does that make sense? It makes total sense. And it's, it's an amazing approach because these brands need you to tell their story, build like more retention, like build the loyalty. But you're also adding value to the end user that's like, oh, wow, look yeah. at all the stuff I can do with thing I've already made. It's funny. I was talking about this with another person where we have these like kind of nice coffee machines. But I was like, I literally know how to do one thing on it. Right. So I made myself right. read the manual. I was like, oh, wow, look at all these other things I could do. But it's so interesting because you're kind of taking the idea of like an in-store demo, yes. the QVC model, but you're making it have this like Netflix, like, like cooking show feel and the TAM total addressable market for people interested in that is quite massive. And so this business model is so unique because it's people attend for free, but then you can monetize from these brands and they're doing the marketing for you because you've got great content. And every brand wants content to push out. Exactly. And not only do they get the class, they get the photography, they get the video assets. So it's a really great deal for them as well, because they're all trying to build up their own content and their own stories on their own site, which makes a lot of sense. But to your point, what I never really looked at it is I, I thought this was the business. Like, let's just do this and we'll just become bigger and bigger and bigger and we'll have bigger and bigger sponsors. And we have a great business that we have. And there was a problem with that. Any idea what the problem was or what do you think? Are we talking about scaling? Yeah. <laughs> so scaling, the problem with that idea was it's an interactive event. Very hard to scale the word interactive. My brother and I had a huge like argument about can you scale interactive? And I don't know, an event with 10 people is very interactive. An event with 10,000 people, even though you can see everybody, how interactive is that really? Now you're kind of back to YouTube again. And so no matter how big I got these crowds, the experience would kind of go down for the people, even though the brands wanted more and more exposure. Really, the mixture was that middle ground. And so I decided that I have to build another revenue stream besides these sponsors. And to me, what I started to kind of look at was, well, what if these sponsors were less of a revenue stream, but more of a marketing tactic? What if these hundreds of people who come in for free 
And to your point, Jim, these sponsors are driving their audience to these classes because it's useful for them. So when we do a class with someone who has a big following, we get that big following, which is great. We get to draft off that. What do you do with all these emails? What do you do with all these people in that one hour? Is there a product I can come out with that's B2C, not necessarily B2B? Because I thought B2B was limited in scale. Does that make sense? It totally does. It's You have this unfair advantage where the people that are paying you are also like helping bring you customers and business because they're sharing your content. And yep. so you're sitting here like homemade's rolling in the emails. Like it's insane. Yeah. And I know this just because like you put food shots on the internet, people are going to like yeah. get into that. But it's like, what do you do? How do you add value to them? But how can you also like monetize that? Right. And I think that I never thought of myself of running a B2C product. And this product kind of became a subscription, you know, and the subscription became this idea of, okay, well, now you've taken a free class that was sponsored. What if you paid and it wasn't sponsored anymore? How can we make this experience even better? So we decide that you can watch the recording anytime you want if you subscribed. But if you don't subscribe, if you missed the live, you missed the live. We decide that you get this access to an amazing array of, of recipes and a library of all the recipes we've done over the years and tested. So you get this unbelievable wealth of, of inspiration. But then we would also open up these small group classes that would keep the classes small and intimate for people who really wanted that. And immediately we saw a huge conversion. And we're only a month in, but we have about 250 paying subscribers. They're all right now, for the most part, annual, which we'll talk about because I know you're <laughs> passionate about that. Um, but it's been a really cool ride. There's been some major challenges one of which is something that you and I have tackled together, which has just been our efforts in, in paid. And one of the biggest headwinds I've dealt with with Homemade is we can get people excited about a class and get them to give an email, but we, ne we can't necessarily force them to show up for the class. And when something's free, people don't value it the same that even if they spent a dollar. And that's been a big challenge for us that we're still trying to work through. Yeah, and to even unpack that for people, like, it's like, okay, let's try a subscription model with consumer. And taking a step back, the subscription model's the holy grail, right? You acquire someone once, they pay you forever. Yeah. Um, and if you can have negative churn, if you're like a sales force where you acquire somebody, and guess what? They share it within their company. So you go from one customer to 100. That's why they have the valuation that they have. Sure. When you think of consumer or a, like subscription on the consumer front, that's tough because you're not a business that has a line item dedicated to this. It's like, what do we do? And the thing that I think through with homemade and the persona, how do they view homemade? Are you entertainment? Are you like a Netflix where they're not going to pay over 10, 15, 20 a month? Are you a masterclass where yeah. you're paying two to 300 a year or are you something premium? Are you a health and like cooking dietitian uh, coach where you could pay a lot? And so it's how you position yourself to get that price point and yeah. then how you do that. Because, yeah, you kind of alluded to like the pricing model of do you do uh, monthly versus uh, annually? And even on this podcast, um, Nathan Berry talked about like if you can get annual over monthly, that's everything. Because obviously, if you're bootstrapped, you get that money up front and the person only has to think about it ideally like once a year if they're going right. to renew. But like if it's monthly, you see that every month. Like, oh, wait, do I want homemade this year, this year, this year? I didn't use it as much. Whereas if it's annually, it's different. And so 
that's something that you're like working through as you go through subscription. Yeah. And also like what features could you add? Cause you've yeah. had some awesome ideas on things you could throw into subscription, but it's like, crap, how do you pull that off at scale? Give your phone number to people like 24 yeah. seven access to Joel on cooking. <laughs> I'll do it, man. I'm ready. You're right, Jim. And I think that I'm in learning phase right now. And I, it's interesting that I'm on a podcast that is, you know, if you started today, because um, I do kind of feel like every day is I'm starting today. Even though I've had a long career, it, it always feels like I'm learning. And just last month, I scheduled 100 meetings. I went on a class and I said, if you're willing to spend 15 minutes with you, you know, I'll send you a surprise. Wow. And so fit, I had set up a Calendly and 100 people signed up. Uh, over the course of a couple of weeks. And I just went from 15-minute meeting to 15-minute meeting to 15-minute meeting. And what you do is, I mean, most of them are just more excited to talk to you because they've interacted with you, but you really hear what they want, what these customers are looking for. And you understand who they are and what their problem point is. And what I gleaned from that after meeting with so many is that it's not cooking that people come to homemade. It's actually social ability and community. They feel like when they sign on to a cooking class that they went out, that they left the house. You know, you would call a Netflix a lean back experience where you lean back, maybe you're on your phone and you're just watching. But homemade is a lean in experience. You're part of it. Like you said, Jim, you're absolutely interactive. You're in the cooking show, all that good stuff. And so that became central for them is this ability to be interactive. And interactive and scaling that, going back to my debate with my brother, has been a challenge. And so how do you scale? How do you build something out of a subscription where people can feel social? And that is where we are today. And if any of your listeners have any ideas, bring them on. But we're trying new things, and that's why we tried to make the price point really approachable. We're giving away subscriptions like MAD, because we want to learn. We want to learn what people are attracted to, what they're watching, what they're engaging with. Because for as much as you can hypothesize, unless you listen and talk, you're you're screwed. Dude, that's amazing. You're doing the uh, scrappy move of literally talking to customers. That's the best thing. Um, I know that can be exhausting, but I, I bet so many light bulbs go off in your head after you can do those back to back to back and you see the common themes that you've already yeah. hit on. And another thing that you're working on in addition to like scaling is what does your balance sheet look like? How much should you be giving up in equity to raise money? Or you just like grind this out and be like, you know what? I can bootstrap this. Yeah. Can you talk through how you're navigating that? and even give some context? Like I think you raised a, a little bit to date, yeah. um, like as a, a friends and family round, maybe a little seed. Yeah. And now yeah. it's like you're hitting this point where like you're growing, but you know you need to invest in things. So whether you go all in, let's go VC, let's go to the moon, or it's like, actually, let's not. And, you know, if there's this outcome where it's valuation of 25, 50, 100 million, that is life changing because of what you could own. Like, how are you balancing those decisions right now? First of all, this is such a fun interview because these are questions I've never been asked. Um, but of course, you're asking them. So I really appreciate it. Jim. <laughs> so first and foremost, Last year, and I'm an open book about this, but last year in our first year of business, we did just about a million dollars, which is awesome in our first year of revenue. So that's a huge signal. And when you do, I think when you do over $250,000 in your first year of business, you start to get on people's radars a little bit and you start to kind of pass that first 
okay, there's a need for this, right? So now there's kind of market validation. And what we learned is that in order for us to get more people, and then for order for us to really start to scale in working with sponsors to start to build that upper funnel, we needed to bring in some key hires. And for that, we needed to raise a little bit of money. So I did have a choice. We had a couple of VCs we were talking to. Um, and I, just for everyone on this call, again, I'm a chef. I come from the TV world. I don't know anything about venture capital, about raising money. So I had to surround myself with really good people that I trust. So the first thing I did before I raised money is I thought to myself, because I don't have a co-founder, it's just me. I thought, who has skills that I don't? And who understands this that I don't? And I'm I'm willing to give up a portion of my company to have them in my corner because I don't know how to navigate these waters. So I started to reach out to some people who I knew and really trust and some people who I didn't know but have built things that I really, really admire. So those people I reached out on LinkedIn, I reached out, I got a hold of them and I said, I'm really interested in you coming on as an advisor. I'd love to talk to you, pick your brain. And after about 10 of those, I found one that I really, really loved as an advisor. Now I've got an advisory board of about eight people and just be full transparent with your audience, including yourself, Jim, because I really trust you who are in my corner, who have my best interest in mind, because they all have equity as well. And they're helping me navigate these waters. And one of the biggest questions was, if you take VC money, it's easy, right? It's very easy. Here's the money, a check to them is not a big deal. But the expectation is really big. And to your point is, they don't want you to be a $50 million company. Sounds great to me. $50 million sounds like a great lifestyle. (laughs) Um, But to them, that's a failure because they have a lot of people they need to pay back. And so they need this to be a billion-dollar unicorn. Otherwise, they want it to bust. And that's why you see companies go under so often. It's because they're not hitting singles. They're hitting home runs, and they strike out. And it's really hard to hit a home run. And so... I am in this place right now where I don't want to hit the home run. I've decided that hitting a single or a double makes sense now. And then in the future, if it makes sense to take on VC money, great. But for the most part, we're cash flow positive. Um, And this seed money I raised about half a million dollars is plenty for us to kind of bring in some key hires and continue to grow the business. And we can kind of slow our way into VC versus just saying, let's take the money. But I don't know. That could be very subjective just to our business. I know a lot of businesses would probably need to take some VC money up front just to get going. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Jim? Yeah. You know, I've been studying this quite a bit and there's a few examples like, and here's the thing, even if you don't go for the big VC route right now, doesn't mean it's off the table. You can do it down the road. Like Viore, the men's fashion brand, they just raised a big round after being a very profitable, sustainable like business for a while. Same with this startup video. It's uh, kind of like a Canva, but for video, they didn't raise anything and they just raised a $40 million round from Sequoia. So you could see still go down that path and it'd probably be much more favorable for you as far as like the the cap table goes. The issue that if you go too early with the VC, you're you're taking that option off the table for this to be kind of more in that bootstrapped mindset. And the thing that I like is like, this is sustainable. You're making money. You can be profitable. Um, Before you go that route of VC, maybe it's worth exploring this because there's so many things that you could be doing. But um. I will say even Rob Walling, who had Drip and then was acquired by Lead Pages, he bootstrapped it and sold it to Lead Pages. And then after he was with Lead Pages and they had all this money, he was like 
oh, wow, this is easier with money. Like, oh, that would have been nice to have that five years earlier. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's so case dependent. Yeah. I mean, to that, I agree with you, Jim. And to that point, right now, what do I have to lose? A lot of people would argue that what I have to lose is market space and and share yeah. of the market, um, which is you could grow faster with money and do more and take up more of the market faster. Um, but for me, what outweighs it is, A, I get to own more of my company and my time, which as a young dad, that's important to me. You work for a VC, again, you're building a billion-dollar behemoth. You're not really in charge anymore. Let's just be real. You have some people to answer to. So I get to drive the ship. That's really important. Second is, I don't know if this is going to be a billion-dollar company. In order to be a billion-dollar company, it has to have a lot of other features. I don't know. I'm not there yet. And so what's to lose right now to... What if this was to scale to a $25 million company and I was to own 40% of that? Sure. I'll take that all day. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, again, um, I think that when you hear the word startup, everyone thinks tech, they think billion dollar valuations and they think, you know, raising a ton of money and then you have 1% of it and you cash out and you're a zillionaire. There's a reason it's called a unicorn. Right. And it's just like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's as a, as a founder, I would urge most people to, if you can bootstrap and learn, it's no different than, uh, than piloting a new test. I feel like yeah. I'm just piloting this business and you're building equity. Think about it. My valuation is going up with every day that we're not taking VC money. And so in five years, if we decide to take VC money, I'm going to own a lot more of the business and have a lot more value. So I don't know. I'm willing to risk the place in the market. Yeah. And if all of a sudden that becomes an issue, you could make a decision. But I, do, I do agree. You're hitting on the point like speed is something that money allows you to do. But if you can find ways to do that without it, then then that's huge. And also maybe networking connections, but you've already kind of done that without having to give up the slot of equity. And thanks for being an open book on this, because I think a lot of people struggle with this at, at this. You're totally. at such this like interesting slash fragile stage of, of growth. I couldn't agree more. And I do think VC I will say it one one last thing is the easier route in the sense that I had to call a hundred and I have the, the Excel format, 125 people to get my half a million. It's a lot of phone calls. And by the yeah. way, it's not one phone call. So, I mean, you can multiply each of those by three. So imagine how much time, how much asking, how much selling, how much effort, how much energy goes into just raising half a million when you can go to one VC and they can snap their fingers. So I get it's easier to go to a VC, mm -hmm. but uh, I think if you can hustle and be scrappy, you'll be happier in the end. That's that's awesome, man. Well, we need to get you back on here in like a year or so to do an update. Yes. It would be super fun. I do want to close with two quick questions. I always do. Um, well, one's new because you're a chef and I do have a quick question for you. But first, <laughs> what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? I'm going to say for me, I didn't finish the story, but Katie Couric and I lost touch after her show. I couldn't get a hold of her because she's Katie Couric. And I ran into her on the street by luck two years later. And she somehow remembered me and she took me under her wing and she marched into TV networks and made it happen. And so for someone like that to take the time was probably the biggest door that was opened for me. And I don't think I'd be where I am without it. Dude, that's amazing. She's so busy, has so much going on, probably gets yeah. hit, hit up all the time. So the fact yeah. that she did that, that that's that's amazing. Yeah. And then the last question, this is the most important question of the podcast. I am 
not the most talented home chef. How can I up my cooking game and impress either people that come over or my four-year-old daughter, but in the <laughs> easiest and laziest way possible? Like, give me like some hacks. So people are like, oh, wow, Jim knows his stuff, but it's a complete lie. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. So I would, <laughs> I would say the best hack you could do, there's two. I'll give you two. Go find or order online something called umami powder. It's not even a company. It's just it's, it's a type of spice. And you can add it to anything, chicken, fish, pasta. And what it does is, is it gets you salivating. It's, it's almost like MSG, but natural. It's literally just <laughs> mushrooms. So you can go with a little bit of umami powder. And then the other thing I would do is take lemon juice and put it into a little, like go to the, go to like the drugstore and get one of those spray mist bottles and fill it with lemon juice and anything you cook. Give it a little spritz at the very end, right before your kids eat it, or and it will brighten the whole thing up. And so those are my two hacks, MSG powder and oh a spritz. <laughs> Dude, this is amazing. You should be like, uh, you should launch like a course or class that teaches people this stuff, <laughs> right? That's, that's amazing. Maybe, okay, okay, shoot. Maybe yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that before this goes live, and I'm not going to let my wife listen to it, so I can kind of like <laughs> wow her. <laughs> I need to do it like it. when she doesn't see it. So it's like a flex. So it's like, wait, what, totally. what's going on here? And don't tell her. Yeah, that's awesome. No, Or okay. you could just have me in the kitchen. She doesn't know that. Don't let her. <laughs> and I just, I set it all up. I get it all ready. I leave and we do the quick swap That's another way to do it. That's another way to do it. I mean, I mean, I know you've got uh, free time, so that works out perfect. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, Joel, where should we point people if they want to learn more about you or homemade? Yeah. Thanks for asking with homemade.com or joelgamron.com. Either one is great. You can YouTube or go on Hulu to catch the, the show Scraps or order my cookbook on Amazon. And Jim, I just want to say, again, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, a big fan of you. Um, a lot of what we're testing and how we're navigating bringing in new people and marketing is because of you. So uh, just really grateful for the opportunity to be here and, and chat with you a little bit more. Well, that's beyond kind of you to say, man. It goes right back at you. It's been super fun. But Joel, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthIt.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.